Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today <laughs> we have a guest who is one of my best friends in the whole world. Her name is Jana Lee. Welcome, Jana. Hey guys. Hi, Jana. Do you want to introduce yourself a little? Tell about your, your job and where you're um, from and where you are right now. Sure. I am a former teacher. Now I'm called an instructional facilitator, uh, which just means that I am a person who can support teachers as they support their kids. I live in Arkansas, which is kind of embarrassing. My daughter the other day was saying like, oh, those people from these other places, that's so lame. And my partner and I were saying, Kai, don't make fun of other places. Dude, you're from Arkansas. Like that's, that doesn't, doesn't work. (laughs) So anyway, I'm from Arkansas. And uh, originally I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri area. And um, I met you lovely people. Um, I'm part of the Pittsburgh, Kansas connection. (laughs) Yay. Well, um, while you're kind of just sharing about your life, do you mind telling us about your family a little bit? Well, sure. I'm the product of a family, as one is. I like to consider my um, upbringing statistical. My parents divorced when I was five years old. Before that, they had me. I'm the oldest child and my little brother. And then... um, after that, my dad sort of exited the picture kind of until I was 18 when he fully exited. My mom remarried um, a man who was a friend of the family, and he had two daughters who are older than I am. They are my family. I call this guy dad. So yeah, I'm just like the American kid who, <laughs> all American in the sense that I come from a broken family, and uh, we sort of cobbled together who my family is. So guy I call dad is not blood related. My sisters are not blood related, but that's my people. And then um, I created my own family. Also a statistic. I got married, had a child, got divorced, sort of lived life, and then ended up choosing to have another child when I was in my early thirties. So now I'm a single mom. I've got my two kids who are half siblings and that's what we do. You're like one of the most wonderful mothers I know too. Like just, you genuinely want to find out who they are, you know, like you don't project onto them. I feel, you know, I feel like you're just helping them figure out their voices and who they are. Thanks. It's a purposeful thing. I I wonder if um, parents who are teachers are motivated the way that I am because we've had so many students who are not the way that we want students to be. And so like, one of my motivating factors in parenting is just how do I not raise assholes? <laughs> Seriously, I was like, I've, yeah. I've taught wonderful kids, I've taught brilliant kids, I've taught kids who are assholes, and it's like, okay, how do I help funnel my children into this? And actually, Caleb, your dad was uh, my psych professor in college. Oh, wow. It wasn't psych 101, it was the next level or something, but he was, maybe it was developmental psych. And um, he ah. was, he gave the analogy of, um, so when a child is first, you know, come, comes into the world, like there is a goal down at the end and um, like every kid could go straight to that goal, but also, you know, could miss it just like thinking <laughs> of soccer. So it's part of like development and part of the adults in society and, you know, just the people around to help funnel that kid toward the goal. And um, I keep that image in my mind as a teacher, as a parent all the time. But yeah, and and your dad was the first guy, uh, the first professor or teacher I'd ever had who actually said, um, I think it was shit, like in class. <laughs> and I, you know, like, that sounds know, right. <laughs> like 18, 19 year old me was just like, oh, can he do that? <laughs> I love 
<laughs> he so can scary. and he did. He did. And it was it was <laughs> eye-opening. Like I loved that moment. Changed my life. Nice analogy, Dad. I've never heard that one actually. It was really it was really cool. So yeah, it has stuck with me and um has been formative. I guess the only other question to ask you before we dive into the episode is what is your history with the show Parenthood? Sure. So um, when I got your lovely invitation to do this, I was flattered and um, you knew that I had never seen an episode. In fact, I think I had heard it only because of you and and some of our friends gushing about it on Facebook. And, and I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to join in this conversation because I have no <laughs> anything. And so, yeah, I, I hadn't seen an episode. I, I had seen the movie, but that was in the late 80s. So um, when you you invited me to do this. I just like signed up for Hulu, the, the free month trial. And um, I watched <laughs> all the episodes up to this one. I actually have not even seen Beyond. So I'm like straight up fresh for episode 11. Well, thank you for doing that. That was so nice of you to like actually watch every episode leading up to this one no, and not just this one. It's really fun. Uh, you know, and people love something. And obviously this is a, a, a real thing. Like it's not a, a stupid underground show that only a certain niche group really enjoys. I mean, this is really, really mainstream. And um, as an English major, you know, I, I respect that if you're going to be exploring themes, you have to know, you know, kind of how things progress in order to talk about it. That's so good. Well, today we're discussing Parenthood Season 1, Episode 11, Solace. It was written by Jeff Greenstein, directed by Ken Whittingham, and it originally aired on May 11th, 2010. And here is the NBC synopsis. Zeke makes his presence known while crashing with Adam and Christina. Elsewhere, Camille focuses on her art instead of focusing on her husband. Trying to get her father out of debt, Julia enlists the help of her old college flame, much to Joel's chagrin. Meanwhile, Amber feels guilty about betraying Hattie, and Crosby thinks about settling down with Jasmine and Jabbar. Not often that you get a synopsis with the word chagrin in it. (laughs) Getting fancy. Yeah. I had a bunch of random thoughts from my first viewing of this episode, and I don't know if I should air them now or air them later. Now I'm intrigued. Uh, So the first one was, Steve looks really good in that color that he's wearing at the beginning. (laughs) I did not write that down. And that it turns out that that blanket he had was for sex. (laughs) We talked in the last episode about how... Blankets are also for picnics, so maybe Amber wasn't right about. But we no, that it was I guess for it, sex. He's a teenage boy, yeah. and there's no was, other yeah. purpose for blankets. Um, <laughs> second thought was, where's Gabby? Like, she's still it's working with them, right? It's, it has been a while. Another thought was, is Adam's office a completely different set now? Like when Sarah comes in, it just didn't look like his office that we'd seen before. Okay. I wondered, how do you make an item? get stuck in a vending machine for camera. Yes, I had the same question. I did too. That's the only one you've written down that I also wrote down. (laughs) I feel like it's either shockingly complicated or ridiculously simple. I bet it's simple. You know how like they, they make an arrow hit the target by just like they show it shooting, but they don't show it actually hit. And then it's just there and they make it happen. I almost guarantee that's what they did here. It was like, it's coming, it's coming. And then they like stuck it in there and said, look, it's stuck. I was impressed. (laughs) It was pretty amazing. Christina, in this episode, when she's pitching the slumber party to Hattie, she says that they'll make Muddy Buddies or maybe Hanky Pankies. Fun fact for listeners at home, Christina only knows how to make rhyming foods. (laughs) (laughs) We I looked that up and that's all she knows. (laughs) 
I liked that Joel and Julia in this episode have a very serious discussion while they're picking up toys. And I thought that felt really real. And then here was my last random thought. I guess it's not so random. It pertains to what I was watching. But um, moving a <laughs> piano is no joke. Especially those old, really tall, upright ones. Those can weigh between five and 700 pounds. Hey, Crosby says 600, so he was dead on. <laughs> Maybe they looked up the same Wikipedia, Google, whatever that I did. <laughs> I'm with Jabbar. I think it's like 600 million. I have moved pianos. <laughs> <laughs> I, the only piano I ever remember moving was a baby grand when I was in high school. Whoa. We had hired movers for it. And you don't just hire movers, you hire piano movers. It's a special thing. And that involved taking the legs off of the piano and then you like turn it on its side and slide it through. And it involves like blankets. I don't know if you'd call them blankets. Those are for sex, not Blanket, for yeah, piano music. <laughs> but like... Large cloths, really heavy-duty things, because you don't want to scrape the beautiful finish of a baby grand piano. And then you move it in, and you put it on its side, and you put the legs back on, and then you have to... uh, It was insane. I also have, like, a list of notes about the piano. Of piano notes? Let's hear those. I thought the piano became another Raverman, like, child in this this show, in this episode. I was really, really, really uncomfortable when it was going down the stairs. Why did they put a 14-year-old boy at the bottom? You know, like the joke about, oh, I'm going to release my hands and let you hold on to it when, you know, this is a really heavy, like it scared me. I was really uncomfortable. And then putting it in the truck and the little, the boys were in there like, this thing is really heavy. It's going to roll and smash into these tiny children, like move the children. And and even, I, I loved Crosby's question. Why is it even up in the attic? How did it even get up there? Yeah, I I found the the piano, everything about the piano was cringe for me. I feel like it's so clear that you're a mom because it did not occur to me like that that was a dangerous joke on Joel's part. I was just like, Joel is funnier than I remember. Like he was, you know, and, and I was glad he made a joke. But now... You're right. That was a dangerous joke. And why was Drew at the bottom? And who stores a piano in the attic? Yeah. I barely thought about that piano, except I guess my thought was that Crosby was being very babyish to like go talk to his mom about how this is too hard for me. You can't have your art studio. You need to paint outside. That was so in character though. I mean, the the guy who's parent whose mom has been doing his laundry for 14 years after he's flown the coop. And, you know, as we've discussed sometimes, I can be very um, contradictory in my opinions. I found it so rude that he asked his mom to give up her art studio, but I found it really charming, actually, his laundry system. I haven't in the past, but when he was telling Jasmine about how, you know, he will have tea with his mom and then he'll watch the game with his dad and then magically it's done, I thought, you know, when you put it that way, it's it's less bad than if he just dropped it off and, like, left. You know, I bet his mom is so happy just to, like, spend the day with him and that he, like, takes that time. And she seems like such a giving person that I bet she would much rather do his laundry and have that weekly or you know whatever tradition and so weirdly I found that kind of charming I was like oh he also kind of uses this as an excuse to hang out with his parents it's sweet but I could see people disagreeing with that and being like no it's not it's it's codependent they probably appreciate getting time with their child too although maybe that's just a story he told Jasmine maybe he really does <laughs> drop it off and be like I got a session I'll be back <laughs> 
Yeah. My first actual <laughs> thought of this episode, and it's not even the episode proper. It was in the previously on. Okay. Did they show a clip in that that wasn't from a previous episode? Not that I remember. Is Hattie telling her parents, we broke up? Oh. Oh. She never told them that, not in any episode we saw. And I even went back to the episode where they have the Love Actually argument to see, (laughs) like, did they maybe just take a clip from that episode where she says we broke up and put it in here? He's not the person I thought he was. (laughs) Yeah, but she she doesn't say we broke up in that episode. So it's footage that I do not recognize. Eagle Eye Hoyer, like, check it out. <laughs> anyway, I also wondered, is this the quickest turnaround between episodes thus far? Because this is the morning after the episode that we just saw. Yeah, I guess so. Although, you know what? I'm realizing now the last episode ended with Camille telling Sarah about the other woman. And she says, I'm sorry about last night. Mm-hmm. And then Sarah goes to Adam's office, apparently immediately after because she says you want to know why mom was so upset last night so it's not even the next morning it's like mere hours later yeah and the timeline is is off because like a lot has happened like I notice it with with Amber because like now she's gainfully employed and she seems to be settled down in school and so things are kind of more normal in her life um and like at the end of this her roots have grown out quite a bit Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't know why that visual really stood out to me. I mean, it wasn't Because like... it's quarantine and all of our roots are growing out. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you're right, though, that the timeline is is different now. You're right, too, because now I'm thinking also of, like, Sarah making pancakes. She says, Grandma and Grandpa had a fight. Grandpa's going to stay with Adam for a while. So she's making pancakes after Camille already told her about the other woman. And at some point in there, Zeke has already gone over to Adams. And and then when does Zeke come down for coffee and say, I'm going to go get donuts? Probably at the same time that pancakes are happening. Yeah, it's breakfast time. It's so funny. This is so, like, for me... I never care about that stuff. <laughs> Maybe that's nuts, but I'm like, whatever, it happened. Here we are. Yeah, Here are I, mean, the- I don't care. I'm just noticing. Yeah, well, you're more, I think you're more detail oriented than I am, I think, because I don't know. I'll just be like, eh, somehow. This happens a lot when I'm teaching, I notice, where my students will remember really, really minute details. And I'll be like, whoa, I don't even remember that. I've taught this book 10 times. I don't know. So I think that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good thing to wonder, but I'm wondering if maybe there is an error in there and I'm just going to like not even care. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. We we're officially examining too closely. <laughs> yeah. We're going to push back. Like, let, come on, push back. All right. So well, I will say Camille, I think I, I understand her motivation after what's just happened to do something, but I think she's being a little dramatic. You know how I've been talking about turning the attic into my art studio? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm finally going to do it. Now? Yeah. And there's a lot of junk up there. Junk? Mom, all of our childhood stuff is up there. Yeah, well, you're going to have to go through it and see what you want. And ask your brothers and your sister if they'll go through it, too. Anything that's important to them, they should take home, because whatever's left, I'm going to, you know, either give away or burn. Burn? Mom! (laughs) Burn? (laughs) Is she Eliza Hamilton? (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
I am totally gonna contradict myself and I'm calling myself out on it preemptively. If this were my life and my mom said that to me, I would be very hurt and I would be reacting exactly like Sarah did. I'd be like, what, mom? As a viewer, I loved it. I'm like, yeah, Camille, get your stuff out of there. Like, get, it's not yours, it's just cluttering your life. You deserve an art studio, she yeah, can't burn just, it. She can't just throw it away? <laughs> I, I it has to be it. burned. I loved, I loved the drama of it. <laughs> Is it not symbolic though? Here, the, the attic has become this repository for all of her children, like like all the life. So we know it's what, 46 years of, of marriage and, and everything is going up there. And the kids have gone. And in many ways, her husband has gone and she's now reacting to it. So if this can be symbolic of, of who she has become, which is just kind of the, the dumping ground, the person who after tea folds her grown son's laundry. And then she's been ignoring, she knew the fact that her husband went out on her and, and just kind of kept it and just didn't really process it. Just as she's done potentially for 46 years, she just took it all in and just stored it. And, and that was it. And now it's like, nope, we're going to clean this out and I'm going to do something for me. God, that's a good point. That Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's completely, and I didn't even really think about it, at least not consciously like that. So I'm really glad you said that because I knew I loved it for some reason. I think you've just articulated why. Well, Camille's not the only one putting a plan in action. We also get Julia's plan. How are you doing with your parents? Um, they'll be fine. It's just, you know, the whole thing started because... He went upside down on a bad investment, which a lot of people do, I might add. All I have to do is help him dig his way out, and he will patch things up with mom in no time. Babe, I looked at the value of the land and the buildings. I, I, I don't know how you, you dig him out of that. Well, that's actually what I, what I need to talk to you about. I was thinking of calling Tim. Oh. I know Tim's not your favorite person. Not even close. he knows real estate. Well, I know real estate, Julia. I was a contractor. Oh, I know, but, you know, he's a fund manager. He has a ton of connections. This is his job. Tim. Tim. Okay, so he has two M's in his name. Let's keep it in perspective here. I am. Joel. The guy tried to steal you from me. I mean, what do you want? It's for my dad. I'll do it for him. Shut up. But not for Tim. How have I never noticed that Joel is like the funniest character on the whole show? I've always thought he was so bland, but he's just like snarky in the background all the time, ready to say something hilarious. Yeah, Crosby even calls it out a little bit when they're moving the piano later and he says, oh, the first time you've ever made a joke and you do it while we're holding the piano. But it's so true. He's so low-key funny, which is, uh, and a lot of times, my favorite kind of funny. And I loved seeing her laugh at him. Yeah. I I don't know that that we've seen that yet. And it it felt like a nice little glimpse of some chemistry between them in a way we hadn't been shown yet. I also thought it was great that she, in typical Julia fashion, was like, he had a bad investment. I'm going to figure it out. And then all their marital problems will be solved. I'm just going to approach this with like steely logic and then it will fix everything. Yeah, there's nothing else going wrong. And and I think that's interesting, too, is that we know that there's something else going on. But she's just like, I think that's very classic of adult children uh, with parents who are having trouble. They can't handle it. 
it's really, really hard on them. And so it's nice to see her reacting in a very natural adult way of like, I'm just going to fix this because, you know, we, we can't have this. My, my parents need to be okay. And, and I can do it. I have the capacity. Now. I'm a grown up. I'm smart. I'm, I'm good at my job. Yeah. So I can, that, that will translate to this personal situation that, yeah, I mean, I like that Joel kind of calls her out very gently, but is like, how are you going to, you know, like, you can't just patch this up. And she just kind of says, yes, I can. <laughs> Here's how. And she doesn't fully learn. And that's going to be problematic, I suspect. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting storyline for a lot of reasons. My Before we met Tim, I thought, oh, this is so interesting that Joel and Julia were having conversations about each other's exes. I think I feel that way because like Mark is friends with a lot of his exes and I'm friends with his exes too. They're like really great people, you know. Um, one of them's been on this podcast <laughs> is one of my dear friends, you know. And anyway, I just, I mentioned that because I'm like, oh, is that real life that people are always so jealous of, of, you know, past relationships. But then we met Tim and I'm like, Oh, Joel's right. He's the worst. Oh, <laughs> you know? yeah. He is. Oh, thing is they, they say it's going to be a 10 minute phone call, you know, just dotting the I's crossing the T's and suddenly they want to reopen all the deal points. We spent the last oh, six months grinding them on. That's the worst. Oh. Yeah, that sucks. <sighs> Bet you're glad you don't have to deal with crap like that, huh, Joel? Whew. Uh, <laughs> stay at home, dad. Yep. Oh, man. What do I have to do to get that job? <laughs> Seriously, though, it's honorable what you yep. do. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a little something I picked up in Tuscany, oh a vineyard last month. Yeah. No, oh, you shouldn't have. Is this, is this the whole place, or? This is it. Well, you know, there's the second floor. But should we have some wine? Wine would be you got awesome. Your, your call, let's, absolutely. Let's start yeah. with our poor wine, and then we'll move yeah, on to this we'll... Tuscany. Save this for a special occasion. That, like, just series of microaggressions could be titled <laughs> Douche Bro 101. Like, just <laughs> all the things. Like, yeah. Uh, and Joel's, like, reactions were pitch perfect. <laughs> I just loved everything. He said, let's start with our poor wife. Yes. <laughs> work our way. <laughs> so passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so really quickly on Tim, is, it, <laughs> is his given name then just Tim? Because that would be short for Timothy. So how does one spell Timothy with two M's? That is bonkers. I've never heard of that before. It's really fun to make fun of. I, I do enjoy the callback at the very end with, with Sydney. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> is it just a plot device that they just keep putting themselves into the worst situations? Like Joel knows that Raquel has the hots for him and still like she's over and they're in the swim thing together. And so like, that's the past episodes. But then in this one, like, yeah, I know Tim tried to rip us apart, but let's just invite him over, you know, and, and then just the way that she's supporting her parents and basically saying, you know, butt out dude, because you don't know for whatever reason, like it makes me nervous about their relationship. <laughs> like, oh man, they're just putting it on the rocks on purpose. I think really insightful because I think that it is really possible to be friends with exes. And I think that that can be incredibly healthy. Tim isn't just an ex. He's an ex who like apparently actively tried to break up Joel and Julia. I don't think you just are friends with him after that. Yeah, it's possible to be friends or even just friendly. But I think at a certain point, that is a dangerous thing to do. You're not like protecting your relationship enough 
may, I mean, maybe it is just for storyline purposes. It's also making me wonder why they made the choice to have this guy be an ex. Yeah. How would it be different if Julia just said, oh, I have this friend who's a fund manager. You know him, right? And he comes over and not because of any baggage, but because of what the guy does for a living. Joel says, I think this guy's a scumbag. And I think what he's doing is immoral and unethical. And it's just really not a good idea to even go anywhere near this. I mean, I suppose it raises the stakes that there's something emotional wrapped up in it as well. It would have been interesting had that happened. Um, You know, we're still in the Great Recession and it would have been an interesting comment on just like the time period that it came out just to basically throw out there like, you know, we have slime balls in our midst who, who do this thing. And the ethical thing that we should all do that we have the power to do is just say no. But instead, he's an ex. And so that's where we get to focus. And not only was he an ex, it leads into a conversation about how Julia doesn't like the only ex we've ever heard that Joel has. Stacy. Stacy. <laughs> she walks around tall and arrogant, you know, like that's her reason. And I think that's really what made me start thinking, how healthy is this? Because, you know, if you just hate everyone your partner has ever been with simply because they were with them, that's kind of troubling. And once I met Tim, I'm like, okay, Joel, you're you're given a pass because this guy is, you know, awful. But it did seem like kind of an unhealthy pattern. And maybe like a really traditional idea of what a relationship has to look like that, well, we get jealous when we hear about the people who came before us, you know, and, and but maybe a lot of people are like that. Um, I don't know. I'm not friends with any of my exes. They're not very good people. Um, <laughs> but Mark's not jealous. We talk about past relationships sometimes because we talk about like what we learned from them and how they shape or change us. But it's not like a, and you dated that guy. You know, it's not <laughs> like that. You know, I, I don't know. But that's always how it is in the movies and TV. And I wonder if it's because, you know, it's just exciting or if that's reflecting something in our society, you know, I, I don't know. Or if it just makes good drama, because I think another thing in their scenes was the comment that Zeke called him a eunuch. Who does yeah. that? Like, that's a weird thing to say. Right. Like, <laughs> Especially, they have Sydney. Like, right. Like, know, I mean, there's like really actual, not. yeah, there's proof. I don't know. Yeah, that's, a, there's a lot of toxic stuff going on just like with that and, and with the whole Joel situation. I mean, I was really interested in the fact that when Sydney was looking at that prom photo, Tim was apparently her high school boyfriend. You know, I mean, that's who she was at the prom with. And that shifted things in my mind because I had been thinking of, you know, if, if he's a real threat, I'm like, he's your high school. I mean, I don't mean to dismiss young love, maybe first love, you know, maybe that's very, very powerful. But I thought, oh, and then I'm like, so he tried to break them up her high school boyfriend tried to break up her eventual marriage like and Joel's pissed about it and didn't just think oh that's cute I don't know it could be yeah it's interesting because I was picturing it as happening as they were married yeah and so within that but potentially it was like she was 18 and he was the fresh ex and she meets Joel in college and and they're together and and he's I don't know driving by me like loser you know Yeah, I mean, that is, it is, it reframes it. But I don't know. Yeah, was was Joel right? I mean, about, you know, let's not get into business with this guy. He's clearly not trustworthy. I mean, it just felt like Julia could not have cared less what her husband had to say. And it was interesting. I mean, not that, 
I guess I'm torn because I do think it should be up to Julia. It's her dad. It's not Joel's dad. But at the same time, if you're married or in a long-term relationship, it's kind of a partnership. I feel like if Joel has serious reservations, he doesn't strike me as someone who would just arbitrarily, you know, let his jealousy get in the way. I mean, it seemed to be about this guy isn't trustworthy, not past stuff with Julia, but that was my that was my interpretation. Right. Did, what did you guys? Because he yeah. invited him to the house. I mean, that was his idea. I thought their whole scene in the kitchen was an interesting mirror to the discussion that they'd had in the kitchen about Raquel a few episodes mm. ago. It wasn't obviously the exact same ground they were covering, but I did find that interesting. And it did seem like Julia just doesn't respect Joel's intellect or opinion. And I had never really detected until now any judgment from her about her being the professional and him being the domestic. But this did feel a little bit like, sweetie, you're out of your depth. Leave this to me. And then I thought it was like very telling that when the conversation was done, he went back to loading the dishwasher. (laughs) We're done with that guy. What are you talking about? I don't trust him. Joel, don't let baggage from a million years ago become a factor in what's happening right now. This isn't about baggage. This is about him bundling money. Like all the crooks who got this country into the whole mess it's in. It's just... Look, Tim is not a criminal. We can find somebody better. Who? To help your dad. Somebody who's not such a scumbag. Yeah? For for starters, me. I can can drive out, take a look at the property, evaluate it. Maybe there's some way I can do some work on it, uh, bring the value up. Joel! We're not putting anything more into this that's throwing good money after bad. You don't have a say in this. You gotta be kidding me. You know I've been over the numbers. And I've been over them and the hole is huge. And there's no one who will do us this kind of massive favor that Tim's talking about doing. The crisis is huge. My parents' marriage is in the balance. I don't know what else to say. I don't know. I feel like I'm being argumentative, but I think that it's very understandable. And I don't even, I mean, I can, I can listen for tinges of superiority and that, but what I really hear is just, I am freaking out. I'm totally in my emotional brain and not really able to be logical, even though I'm saying what I'm saying is like, oh, I'm totally being logical here, but I am freaked out because my parents are not doing well. We have this huge problem and I can't think of another way to fix it. And the real logic is that you don't throw good money after bad. That that would not be a good idea. So I I think what she's saying is very reasonable or very understandable, not necessarily reasonable. Something you hear from them in their relationship a lot is like, she's a braverman. And I really would say it's more of that She's a Braverman first. And so it just seems like she puts her family and all of that before she puts her own, her husband, her, her daughter, her family. Wow. Is that, is that bad? I mean, I feel like most people, once they start a family of their own, the idea is then you put that family first. Although now I'm wondering if that's better. Is there, you know what I mean? Like, is, is there a right here? Like maybe it's not even bad that she puts her you know, childhood family first. But I I guess I'm just thinking out loud. What do you guys think? I didn't get the sense that she was putting the other family first. But I thought, I think, Jana, you raise a good point that 
she does seem to be totally equating fixing the financial problem with solving their marriage. Mm, And thus seems terrified. Like, whatever we have to do to fix this, we'll just do it. And Joel seems to be, I think, a very... uh, He can step back and be more objective. Yeah, like the voice of reason. Because he's more objective, he can say, this is not a good idea to get into a situation like this which may be very good advice, but like you said, it it is understandable why she is clinging to it so much. It, to her, it's like, well, do I want my parents to stay together or not? What he offers to do is very sweet, but just factually, she probably is right. What are you going to do to it? I mean, we saw the space. I don't know what he's going to do that's going to suddenly make it so valuable. That's really generous of him to, to try, but... But yeah, I didn't get the sense that she was like, oh, my allegiance is to the Bravermans. (laughs) It also hadn't even occurred to me that she never finds out about the infidelity. That's exactly what I was going to bring up, that it makes me feel like it's really unfair that now she and Joel have their own marital problem. I, I think much smaller, you know, but now they're going through something that they probably wouldn't go through if Julia had all the information. Because if she knew that Zeke had cheated, I don't think she would think, I can fix this. I think she would realize how complex it is. And maybe she should realize that anyway. But if she thinks this is just a financial snafu, if we fix that, we fix the marriage. And so it makes me sort of sad that like two of the siblings have this information Two don't. It's kind of arbitrary that Adam has the information because Camille didn't confide in Adam. You know, it was Sarah who did, and she could have just as easily told all of them. If you're going to tell one sibling, why not tell all of them so that they're all on even playing field and they know what's going on? And then that way, Crosby wouldn't have pressured his mom about the the attic. You know, he would have been a lot more understanding. Also, was I the only one who thought that Sarah has the worst poker face in the world? (laughs) I feel like any time the four siblings were talking about their parents in this episode, Sarah was like shooting these looks to Adam that maybe just because, you know, we, the audience knew what she was hiding but to me, it was like broadcasting. We know something you don't know. We're not going to tell them, are we? And that follows like, her character, on, Sarah, though. I mean, she, cool. she gets the information and like, you can't tell anybody. Like, I'm not allowed to tell anybody. So I'm going to tell you, Adam, but you can't tell anybody. Like, she has no poker face. <laughs> she has no ability to just contain this. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, when she tells Adam, she's like bawling, you know? So yeah, she absolutely doesn't have a poker face. Adam had a bad one, too, though. Like, they kept exchanging glances. They were like... And the others are like, what's going on? You know, and Crosby's like, what's what's up with dad? And he's like, he's there, you know? He like, was just, yeah, he sounded <laughs> furious. So I don't know. Well, Zeke's presence in the house is uh, uncomfortable, to say the least. <laughs> hey, Hattie. Hey. How was school? It was fine. Hey, you want a virgin screwdriver? No, thanks. Hey, sweetheart, I know things are tough, so you hang in there, all right? Okay, yeah. And good for you for resisting when that boy, you know, was trying to get you out of intercourse with him. I'm so proud of you. Thanks, Grandpa. You're welcome. The virgin screwdriver kills me. I'm going to steal that. That that's really cute. Orange juice. And the, the fact that he uses the word intercourse, I think it's Oof. just perfect. <laughs> it's so funny. Grandpa talk. 
You know, it is interesting, though, how his, his grandpa talks are so different with his granddaughters than his grandson because I mean with Drew masturbating in the shower all the time it was like you know our libido is something incredible (laughs) and with you know and he doesn't I guess directly talk to Amber but he talks to Damien and he's like you know you took my daughter's my granddaughter's innocence and now he's like good for you for not let you know it is we've talked about it before and I guess yeah and the Adam has a seems to have a streak of that as well yeah that misogyny is really true to our society. I enjoy that it's in there because it's real. Having this weird relationship with girls, especially when it comes to sex, because, you know, purity thing. But then, you know, to the boys, it's all macho and, and masculine and you do this and you're the guy and you're the man. I think it's really true to character. And Adam, as I mean, he is, I think his name is symbolic. He's number one. He's He's the the boy. And so um, I think that actually kind of comes in in this episode as, as we, you know, we'll follow on and, and talk about his relationship as a father with Max as sort of like the evolution of fathers in this country, because Zeke was a breadwinner. Zeke was the the patriarch of the Braverman family. He brought up his, his kids and his quiet wife, you know, I assume just came alongside and was the good mother, you know, so yeah, it's good to be virile and potent and have your your boys and, you know, do the thing and, and, you know, make sure we protect the girls because they're the squaws in our tribe. And I don't know. I just, um, I, I think that felt uh, really real. And then um, I think it's an interesting reflection um, as they explore that relationship that Adam has with his young son later on and how um, I think society has changed uh, where dads are not just the breadwinners anymore. Dads are expected to be part of it. But still, there's a little bit of that machismo that's still part of the expectation of fatherhood. It's something I never really noticed just casually watching the show for enjoyment before. But this this rewatch, I'm, I'm really noticing a lot of that. And yeah, it's hard to even say to what degree it bothers me because I think it is reflecting a reality. And I like that we do have characters like, ha- I mean, Hattie. <laughs> I think it's really great. You know, in the last episode, she told Steve, I'm not just upset, I'm upset. We talked about that, like, good for her. She calls her dad out on the double standard, you know? So I feel like the show presents this because it's it's real, but maybe doesn't just let it sit there like the show is is promoting that, you know? It's just trying to depict these characters honestly. But yeah, I like that, that Hattie, I think she's just really strong and cool. <laughs> I'm just really sure of herself. Yeah, she's like no girl I've ever met. I, I admire her and as I watch her, I'm just like, um, yeah, that's the way that I would react with my brain that I have today and not my 15 year old brain. So yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a little, I, I hope there, I'm sure there are girls like her out there in the world today. I just don't know any. <laughs> Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're ever supposed to doubt that Zeke has a good heart, but he is a bull in a china shop <laughs> in so many other aspects. Yeah, and I mean, he does have very strict gender role ideas, and it makes me think that Joel being a stay-at-home dad, like, perhaps there's some judgment with Zeke there that, you know, even though it's weird because he seems really proud of Julia for being a lawyer and he is really encouraging of Sarah when she's applying for jobs. So his sexism seems less about like limiting women, but more like men still need to be out there. Like he doesn't seem like maybe he respects what Joel brings to that family, which is so much, you know, and, and so I wonder if that might have something to do with it. 
Also, but speaking of Zeke and, you know, his his views of gender, he's just very traditional kind of all around. I mean, his attitude towards the pets Max <laughs> likes. That is about normalizing is... Max. That pissed me off. Sorry, I had a real opinion about that. I'm like, he thinks it's weird that Max has crickets and that Max has a turtle. He thinks it's normal to have a dog. He wants his grandson to be a typical boy, a typical man, you know, and, and I think that it's beautiful beautiful that Adam and Christina I mean I don't think it's just about the fact that they like that he's getting these low maintenance pets you know I I, <laughs> I did like that she tossed that in though because I like a parent wrote that line didn't they <laughs> I also thought promising your kid a pet thank you is quite a big promise if you don't know what they're right. gonna choose oh, God, I like this Komodo dragon like it could have been anything <laughs> That's true. Oh, God. But yeah, I do love that Adam and Christina understand who their son is. They're devoted to being his parents and not just the parents of a kid his age, you know, and they've learned certain things like the the TV switching over to SpongeBob, you know, they, they and, and I don't know, I think it's interesting that Zeke frames that as he's running the house. I could even see how it could come across that way. But I think if this is built on compromise and Zeke just hasn't seen all the, you know, steps that it took to get there, maybe that's, you know, what it seems like. But I don't know. That's the whole, every time Zeke brought up the dog and I love dogs. I have three dogs, but I was like, that's not the point. The point is you're, you're wanting your kid to be, your grandkid to be normal, quote unquote. And it made me sad. It like broke my heart. Like just love him for who he is. I was interested in just the way that when Zeke came into the home, how everything just exploded. They had a system that worked. SpongeBob came on at a certain time. You know, everything was okay. The coffee was good. Everyone was pretty chill. And then he gets in there and everything he touches just is a disaster. He's, he's going to want to go back home where it's normal because it's just so, so not. And he, he is no longer the patriarch. Adam is the patriarch in this space. He's not used to that. This is his boy. He, he raised this boy. And so when he steps in, he's supposed to be the man. And um, the reality in Adam's home is, you know, Adam is the man. He's the dad. Uh, he has a partnership with Christina and they have this whole system that they've developed. And Zeke goes in and, and doesn't understand that his role is not dad. So I thought it was really, really cool how they put a magnifying glass on that and then let him kind of come around to the fact that like, like different is okay. I do like that the whole pet situation allows him to have the line, which I think is really funny when the turtle goes missing and Zeke says, did you check eight inches away from where you left? <laughs> yes, <it was laughs> great. Yeah. I do think it's really important that in our analysis, we don't lose everything that's great about Zeke, because I think this is a tough episode for Zeke, you know, <laughs> you know, um, for many reasons, some of which we have not gotten into yet. It's interesting because he, I think, does have a big heart. And I think he's largely a really good person. He has a lot going for him. But yeah, it, it feels like maybe he's been coasting for a long time on all of his good attributes. And now it's like, it's not so charming or something. I, I don't know. It's, it's all kind of blowing up in his face a little bit. But it, it was good. Like at the end of, as they resolved that with Adam, with him saying, you know, you're 10 times the dad that, that I am. And, and Adam sweetly being like, no, you know, you're, you're a good dad. You were a good dad. And then, you know, the maybe five times. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's interesting. Like what you were saying, Jana, about Zeke coming into Adam's house and not realizing that this is not his domain where he just gets to call every shot. 
to see what Camila's going through in this episode, it makes you wonder, you know, if she takes him back and he's back in that house, he's probably very used to calling every shot in that house. And it seems like she's maybe learning she has to call some shots too, She that she's not okay with the way that it's been. And will he be okay with it not being that way in his own house? I think more to that point um, that Camille, first of all, she's hiding something um, and I don't know what it is, but, but they've, they've alluded to it in very small ways where it's like, oh, well, you don't know what she's done. After she, when she comes back and Sarah says, oh, mom, that means that she slept with her teacher, right? I, <laughs> like yes. that's totally I mean, sex. That was, okay. That's what I, yeah. So, but I felt like even before that, like there was something that was on her too, because it's never just about one person. I'm just sort of waiting for like her secret. Like what's, what's her role in this as well. That's not making everything work. I don't think she's just the victim or, and just, you know, complacently hanging out while her husband goes out and and does something. I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. I don't know what my point was. (laughs) Let's delve into that a little bit. Adam eventually confronts Zeke with what he knows. Look, Adam, why don't you and me go to the pet store, we'll get a golden retriever, and he can find a turtle. Stop with the damn dog. Well, I mean, you really ought to get Max a real pet, Adam. Oh, my God, would you shut up? What, do you think I don't know why you're here? What do you mean? I know that you cheated on Mom. What? You heard me. Who told you that? Does it matter? It's none of your damn business, son. Well, how could you do that to her? We did it to each other, Adam. It takes two to tango. Well, that's a load of crap, you son of a bitch. No, no, it's not that simple, son. Really? Really, you're gonna blame Mom for screwing around with some other woman? Hey, let me tell you something. When you've been married 46 years, you come and talk to me. Until then, you just back the hell off. For one thing, let me say, I'm so impressed with Craig T. Nelson's ability to take Zeke from one moment of being a kind of buffoon that you laugh at. Like, we'll go down to the store, we'll get a dog, and you're just like face palming and like, oh my gosh, this guy is such a ridiculous blowhard. He's so silly. And then as soon as, you know, Adam hurls this line at him, the tone of the whole scene changes and suddenly he's this very real serious man and i i feel like that can't be easy and he makes it seem easy (laughs) i feel like zeke's reaction has lots of i wouldn't even call them justifications but like caveats or something and they're almost all cliches too i feel like we did it to each other it takes two to tango it's not that simple but I do think it's true that no one really knows what goes on in a marriage or in a relationship except the two people involved. And I, I know Melissa and I have talked before just in life that infidelity is sometimes placed above all other vows that you make to a spouse. And that's not to say that there's a justification for cheating, but people can hurt one another in all sorts of ways. And just because you have been cheated on, that doesn't mean that you're innocent. I always use the Sex in the City um, movie because in that movie, just real quick, um, Steve cheats on Miranda. Steve is like the best partner in the whole world up until that point. And Miranda has treated him like garbage for like the entire length of the show and the movie. And then when he cheats on her, it's like, oh, what a betrayal. And it is, but 
treating someone horribly for the course of 10 years, I think is worse than someone kind of snapping. And so I'm not even saying that's what happened with, with Camille and, and Zeke. I don't think it is, but I do think infidelity is this complicated thing that Adam is being very black and white about. I mean, it's almost childish the way that he like explains to Christina that it's not genetic and he won't do that to her. And she's like, I know, you know, like he's just, he sounds almost to me like he's 10 years old explaining that cheating is wrong. And, it's so complicated and Zeke is like calling him out on that because he's got all this experience and he knows that also how I couldn't believe when he said 46 years I was like what it's so funny the I remember the first time or second time I watched this back in the day thinking that that was an absurd number but I did some I did a little math (laughs) I don't think it's so absurd he says they've been married 46 years at the time of this episode Craig T. Nelson was 66 and Bonnie Bedelia was 62. So I think she must be playing a little older than she actually is. Because that would mean, if the characters were the same age as the actors, that would mean they were 20 and 16 when they got married. And so I don't think that's well, right. If you, have care, if you have kids in their 40s, presumably they were married and yeah. they were because their kids are in their 40s. And Adam is 40, we've established, I believe. Mm-hmm. So if the parents were married in 1964, that would be 46 years at the time of this episode. Here's my issue with that number. 1964 was the year of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was the you know largely manufactured pretext for the war in Vietnam or for sending combat troops there. And Zeke says on his road trip with Adam that he learned to have sex in Vietnam. Oh, shit. And he mentions to Drew when he was on leave in Bangkok, things he was doing there. So he was already married when he was over there and he's just admitting freely to his family that he was cheating on Camille? Probably not. Probably that's just um, you are going into it and the writers probably should have thought about that. Continuity error. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, yeah. I hope it's that. I don't, I don't think we're going to try to make this guy nefarious. <laughs> so I, I shared, I'm a child of divorce. My parents divorced when I was five years old. I divorced my daughter's father when she was three. So we actually had a conversation about that. She doesn't even remember when we were together. I remember my parents being together. I just remember it not ever being good. These adult children, you know, um, have the benefit of all the good times and all the bad times, but through the lens of just their childhood experiences, which are extremely self-centered, right? It's really, really hard for adult children to face separation or divorce of their parents. I think harder than the the easier, the younger you are, the easier it is. Um, Teenage kids have a huge problem um, with it. So I think that uh, his reaction was extremely realistic it would be such a rift in like who Adam is, who all the kids are today to have their parents all of a sudden not be a unit. And then I think for Sarah's experience with seeing her father or her mother um, with this other dude after like never, like this is, she's in her forties and she's never ever seen this, I think is really, really difficult. That is a really, really well-made point. It makes me remember that I I have a vivid memory of this specific episode from watching it the first time because I would have watched this in 2010, less than a year after my parents told us they were getting divorced after 33 years. And I 
remember in this episode, it seeming like, oh, this is not just going to be a one episode hiccup in this couple's story. And I remember as an adult child of divorce, rooting for Zeke and Camille to split up because I just wanted to watch someone else go through it. The thing I'm going through, they might be going through too. And then I was like, I hope they do go through it, which is a horrible thing to root for because... Because dramatically, I want Zeke and Camille to stay together because I like them being the foundation of this huge family, of course. But yeah, personally, I just wanted someone else to go through it too. So I have a question for you then, Caleb, because you have lived this where Melissa and I haven't. Do you think that Adam's response to his father was realistic? Was it appropriate? Uh, I certainly thought it was realistic. I'm not sure if it's a appropriate if you don't know everything that has gone on. You can't really make that kind of judgment. In our situation, we didn't have, I think, the same feeling of like, oh, we've seen all the good times and so we can't even conceive of what... It did not shock us that our parents got divorced because we knew that there were issues. We didn't know all the issues, though. The biggest shock was as those things gradually came to light... It was a feeling, I remember thinking, this is kind of a corny analogy, but I remember thinking like, oh, I thought that I had been living in a sitcom my whole life, a like hunky-dory, happy-go-lucky family sitcom. And actually I've been living in a soap opera and I'm not finding out about it until my mid-20s. And that was the hardest thing to deal with. But when I look at it from my parents' perspective, You know, I don't fault them for hiding some of that stuff from us because we shouldn't have had to deal with it. You know, my childhood was was very hunky dory and happy. And if in order to have that happy childhood, I needed to have some things that were going on in their lives kept from me. That's probably for my benefit. And I'm I'm sure that they thought it was. And it's also like Zeke says, it's none of your kids business to a large extent. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's really interesting. You just reminded me of just, I, I'm going to have to go to William Blake because I love him, but it's the loss of innocence. You know, it's part of being a child. And as a parent, one of my goals is to keep my children, keep their innocence as long as possible, because most of life is about experience and experience hurts and experience helps you see other things and makes you worry. And so I want to keep some of that innocence as much as I can. I think that's a parent's job is to protect their kids from things. And so it's good that you had that hunky dory life. I think what you just pointed out though, was that, you know, we consider like loss of innocence. A lot of people, like when they lose their virginity, um, it's like, Oh, now you're experienced. Well, I was 14. Um, and I still had so much innocence left to lose later than that. And so in, in your case, I mean, you were in your early twenties, right. And still you had it to lose. And so I think we're sort of watching that, I guess, even play out in this show where you've got these adult children who have, you know, their own experiences, they've lost their innocence, but they're still, you know, knowing everything about your parents, which is something that never fully happens. And some people don't get to find out about things until they read their parents' diaries after their parents pass away in their seventies and eighties. You know, it's like, I think maybe that's the final loss of innocence actually is, is getting to hear all your parents crap and you know, they have it because we all do, you know, and I'm never revealing all of it to my kids. There's so many parts of that, like realizing that your parents are people, not just figures Mm -hmm. or symbols in your own life. And then as you grow up realizing, you know, I mentioned my parents were 19 and 20 
now that 19 and 20 is a fairly distant <laughs> age for me, oh man, I mean, anything that I might have judged them for, it goes way, way down because they were children mm-hmm. and they were just doing the best they could. And they did a lot right. I mean, at least I certainly think their their children are a testament to all that they did right because I think my sisters and I are awesome <laughs> people. And I think we are totally, it's, we are not awesome people because we're trying not to be like our parents. Aww. And one thing my parents always said, and I think probably would still both of them say to this day, they never had disagreements about how to raise their kids. That was the area where they really were a united front. With my ex-husband and with my ex-boyfriend with whom I have a child, my number one goal with them is to make sure that we have self-actualized children. It's co-parenting. It's putting away anything else. The the fact that my ex-husband, you know, certain behaviors make me crazy. To this day, you know, I I called my ex-husband yesterday just to check on him to make sure he's okay to see if he needs anything. Um, I sat next to my ex-boyfriend at my son's t-ball game so we could root him on and you just... You just do that. You just make it work because, you know, we all have crap, you know, put that all aside and you put the kids first and you want to make sure that they are productive citizens. They're not assholes. That is what parenthood is all about. And I think, you know, to take it back to this show, we can see that here. We're seeing all of these people's lives. So we see the dirty stuff, but we see the happy stuff. We see the stuff that they would want to put out on social media. And and then we see the gritty and, um, how it all sort of wraps together to make a beautiful story where ultimately the goal is for everyone to come out winning. Well, since we're talking about this long, long long-term marriage and its problems, let's discuss Camille's half of this equation a little bit. Early on in the episode, she tells Crosby, Sometimes you just have to make a choice. Is that what explains her behavior in this episode? Has she simply decided to get revenge or decided to, I'm going to do whatever I want. Whereas like prior to this, she might have let other factors restrain her because it it does almost seem like she's on a mission. I don't know. I had no judgment. I don't know that I was like rooting her on necessarily, but I, I felt like I totally got where she was coming from. You know, like the minute you see her in that outfit, we, I don't think we could know, but I think she knew, you know, like she was wearing that outfit. She looked beautiful You know, when Sarah asks to come along, you can tell that really throws Camille off because that's not the evening she has planned. She says, okay, and, you know, and and she plays it off to Sarah, right? Like, my whole class is going. But I think in her head, this was a date. Why do you think Sarah invited herself? Was it to monitor her? Oh, that's so interesting. Yes, I think so. Oh, I think Jana nodded and I shook my head. That's so funny. Go ahead, Jana. Well, I think, you know, just like you, you said, you see her, she's gorgeous. This is not at all what you normally see. And something is up and it's like, yeah, I want to find out what is going on with mom right now because she's not acting normal. She has said these things. All of these things are, are different. She said, you know, sometimes you just have to make a choice. Like, she wants to burn my chair. Exactly, my, my bunny, whatever that stupid bunny was. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I really do think that, that she was just like, mm, something's going on with mom. And I think mom needs girlfriend right now. Needs some support. You know what? I think you're right. You changed my mind. Cause I, w- I was thinking no. Cause like when she 
bounds up the stairs. She's like, you want to order a pizza? I just saw somebody eating pizza and it looks so good. And like, I felt like, you know, earlier, Jana, you were talking about like innocence. And I guess I was thinking of Sarah as being sort of innocent in this moment, like in the sense that she just was envisioning a night with her mom. And before it was, let's order pizza and like maybe watch stuff and hang out. But then when her mom's all dressed up, then I thought she switched over into, okay, let's go out. Sure. That sounds fun. Let's, let's, you know, so I think that's why I shook my head. I was thinking, oh no, she just wants to hang out with her mom because she thinks her mom is down. But now that I've heard you say that, mm, that makes sense. I do get that. Their whole dynamic in the episode felt a little strange to me. When Camille comes home, I felt just an eensy teensy bit like Sarah was slut shaming her. Oh yeah, she was. I guess mostly I just don't understand Sarah's goals with Camille. I assumed that she was trying to monitor her when she invited herself along or, or keep her from doing something stupid if she could. But does she suspect that something was going on before they even got there? I mean, I guess you brought up the just how she looked. Just the potential. I don't think that, that she knew like there was, it was the evening was going to end with sex or anything, but it just seems like moms, I think girls know, you know, our girlfriends are, are in a place and they're just like, let's just go out. Let's just dance. And, and you go out <laughs> with them uh, because you're like, man, someone's going to slip this girl a roofie and she's not even going to notice. Like, I thought it was kind of that kind of radar thing going on. We're just like, mom's kind of going wild now. I think that this, you know, part of the symbolism of, of this particular episode was taking the the role reversal of the oldest children. And, and so you put Zeke with Adam and you put Sarah with Camille and it flips. And all of a sudden Adam is the dad teaching his dad, mm. you know, what it's like to be uh, the, the man of the house. And I think that Sarah got to play mom with her mom. So when she came home, it was like, mom's waiting up with the lights on. And I mean, they even called it out. So that's, that's how I took it. I felt like when she got home, it almost felt like Sarah was badgering her. I mean, politely, but like she was trying to like goad her into confessing her sins or something throughout the whole episode. It almost felt like a whiff of Sarah, like daring her mom to cheat on Zeke, which I don't think is accurate, but something about it just felt a little off to me. You waited up. Revenge, huh? For all those nights I made you wait up? Yeah, right. There aren't enough nights in the year. Mom! What? How was it? Oh, it was fun. I had a really good time. What'd you do? Uh, well, um, we went to the the other art show. You would not believe how bad the art was. It was like someone threw up all over the canvas. We got out of there in about five minutes. And we went to um, a, a bar. It was a pub, Irish pub. We had Irish coffee, and uh, it, it was nice. There was a there was a band there that wasn't so great. So we left there, and we went back to Matthew's place. And um, he made us a fire and uh, served us some port. And we talked, and, um, and, um, and... It's funny thinking about what you just said and then what I said earlier about coming to understand that your parents are just people. Up to now, Camille has really seemed like just a font of wisdom. You're the brave one. And, you know, if you don't try, you're never going to succeed. And she knows all. And here she's clearly kind of 
flailing. She's put herself into a, a situation that I'm not sure she even really wanted to be in. She just doesn't know what to do. So she makes a choice and then she has to deal with it. I interpreted her hand over her mouth as like up to that point, she had only been making decisions that night through her own perspective. What do I want to do? What feels good to me? What feels right? And then suddenly face to face with her daughter, she's suddenly seeing it from her perspective and realizing, you know, I think maybe sleeping with Matthew felt really good to Camille and felt fun or empowering And then she's seen it from this other point of view and like, oh, I've just really let my daughter down. Back to her comment to Crosby, you know, sometimes you just have to make a choice. There's always been the implied, but every choice will have consequences, positive or negative. And so it's like, maybe that was a really intentional thing that she said because she was already making the decision. She knew what her plan was because this is the same day, right? Yeah. So she knew what her plan was. She was going to do that. Sometimes you just have to make a choice. I'm making my choice. I'm going to sleep with my right. teacher. Right, <laughs> he's hot and stuff. He thinks I'm amazing. Um, but then there are just the consequences. And sometimes when you make a choice, you're not thinking about the consequences until all of a sudden they're there or it dawns on you. I like what you said about she's this fond. I mean, they have her up on a pedestal. They have both their parents up on a pedestal and all of a sudden they're real and we're just knocking them down. You know, earlier, Caleb, you said like you thought she was slut shaming her and that wasn't how I interpreted it. Though now that you say that, I I can see that. But to me, it felt more like she and Adam both had this very, again, young idea of their parents' problems. Dad had cheated, so he's the bad guy. Mom was cheated on, so she's the good guy. And I felt like when Camille revealed that she'd slept with Matthew, that was that was Sarah going like, oh. You know, I think just more, more innocence lost, right? Like more of this idea that things are complex and I didn't know that they were complex. I. I had one story and then I knew my dad cheated. So then I had a different story and now mom has for sure cheated. And now I have yet another story. And like, I feel like she just has to keep revising her childhood and her idea of who these people are. I didn't really get the sense that, I mean, but maybe, I mean, when she does tell that guy. Unbelievable. Excuse me? Oh, I'm sorry, not you. It's, I mean, I get it. You know, you're hurt, you want revenge, but that, this. Who, who, who are we talking about? It's my about? mother, it's my, the little lady with the necklaces is my mother and the guy she's talking to is her art teacher. Oh, they make a cute couple. <laughs> They're not a couple. That woman is a grandmother. Look at her, flirting and giggling. It's like she's in the Sex in the City movie. Oh, I'm so looking forward to seeing that sequel. Well, so am I, I'm not dead inside, but the fact is that guy's a homewrecker. She's a grandmother. Mm. You know, like grandmothers can't have sex. Or, <laughs> they never know, have like... before. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why do you think she waited up for her? That little feeling I had of like, she was going to get the truth out of her. You know, my feelings would have been hurt if I had gone out with someone, especially my mom, and they had left what I thought was like a hangout and <laughs> to go be with someone else. So e- even just from that vantage point, like, maybe her feelings are hurt, but also I'm sure she did think that they slept together and she probably wanted confirmation. I don't know if it's in a judgy way or if in a, just like, now I got to know the truth. Like that's probably like a rip the bandaid off. Like, yeah. If you did this thing that I really hope you didn't do, I should know it's better that I know it than wonder. Yeah. But again, I a little bit wonder, is that any of her business? Well, didn't Camille kind of make it her business when she confided in her about Zeke? I mean, 
Good point. You know, she she kind of did um, dissolve those boundaries a little bit and made Sarah more of a friend. And so, and now we're seeing, like Jana said, Camille as daughter almost and Sarah as mother. And so like all the boundaries are just like real blurred, real blurred lines right here um, for, for a bit. <laughs> so yeah, no. <laughs> this is something that's very true in my, my life and my experience. I think it also makes for good television telling on yourself. So Camille mm. um, reveals, okay, well, this is what's going on with your dad. Um, and then later on coming home being like, so first we did this and then we did this, which sounds like the teenage daughter coming home. Yeah, so we went over to so-and-so's house and then, um, but also the parallel to Amber telling on herself yeah. to Hattie, which I was like, no, don't do it. Oh, this is <laughs> terrible. But then I was just like, this could go either way. She could have kept that to herself, probably should have but also probably should have told and it makes for better television. So I don't know. Are you guys ready to talk about that? Can I talk to you for one second? Yeah. About Steve. Oh my God. I know. I saw you guys talking in the cafeteria. He probably, did he say something weird? Because he makes jokes and like, Hattie, it's not that. Uh, What? What? No, I just, what? <laughs> I I slept I slept with him. Ha ha. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I, I it was an accident. I'm I messed up. I I was drinking and he was being nice and I just something is wrong with me. I'm sorry. I wish I could take it back. It was an accident. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, can please try just, to understand. Can you, can you stop talking? I don't know what happened. Please, please don't be mad at me. Please don't be mad at me. I'm so sorry. Please. Oh, God. Oh. I think the reason I'm so torn on this storyline, because I felt like in the last episode, Jana, I feel like I was all over the place. I didn't know what my opinion was. And I think the reason why is my heart goes out to both of them. Like, I, I don't think Amber's a bad person at all. But I think Amber, sorry, but I don't think Hattie is overreacting at all, you know? And so it's like, I think both things are true at once, you know? And I think that's just good writing. You know, it's a storyline that, yeah, could be too soapy or something, but it feels, it feels like it was handled really well. And you can only imagine the ramifications that it's going to have on their extended family. And I just think, oh, I don't know. That's, I guess that's the extent of it. I just, my heart goes out to them both. And don't tell on yourself. I can save so much. Well, yeah. What do you, what do you think? Well, either of you, because Janet, I feel like you raised it, but should she have told her or would it have been better I've heard that sometimes when you confess, it's like ultimately to make yourself feel better because you can't live with the guilt. And so like, it seems like the selfless thing to do to confess something that you've done that really like hurts people. But in some ways, maybe it's not. Because if Amber never goes out with Steve and that was truly it, maybe it would have been better for Hattie never to know. And I don't even know if I believe this. I'm kind of just following this train of thought, you know, but maybe it would have been better for her not to know and never feel that pain. But on the other hand, if she never knows and they continue to be as close as they've ever been, then maybe the foundation of their 
friendship is a lie. And so I, I guess I'm really, I'm, I'm torn. Um, I didn't, I didn't provide any clarity. <laughs> what do you think, Jana? I think the first part is very true. And I don't have an answer. I think, you know, the self selfishly, I'm just like, don't throw a wrench into it. Stop telling because, because there wasn't going to be anything. And she felt so bad about it. And I think it wasn't about Hattie and it wasn't about Steve. I think it was really about Amber. Amber's got some daddy issues and Amber needs to feel loved by a guy. And all of a sudden she has this guy who's telling her all the right things. And oh my goodness, you are so special. And, you know, it's so different with you. And she, she was in a really good spot with him, but the reason she was in a good spot with him was that she, he was doing the wrong thing to her cousin. And so she confidently is able to tell her cousin, no, this guy, what you did was right. That guy is not good. And she knew because she could see it objectively. And then Steve comes up and he's saying all these things and he's really attracted to her because she's so confident. And she's finally in the, the right spot, which is when guys like you, damn it. Yeah. And so she's perfectly <laughs> primed, but then because of all of her issues, it's so easy to just fall into it. And she did, but oh, it just makes me really sad for her. I just think Mae Whitman is amazing. The way oh. that she played that was so real. God. And I just, like, I, I believe Amber's character so much right now. And I'm just... I, for some reason, I really identified with this storyline a whole lot, even though I'm 40 years old and <laughs> a teenager. So, I agree with you about Mae Whitman. That's another thing about this specific episode that I remember so vividly was her confession and her crying. The first time I ever saw it, I instantly started crying myself. <gasps> and I maybe shouldn't have been surprised because... This scene just confirms for me what I now truly believe, which is that Mae Whitman was born to cry on camera. <laughs> and I say I should have known because when she was nine years old, she was in Hope Floats. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to play this scene because I, I cannot believe that a nine-year-old oh. did this. It's when her father is leaving. Stop it, Daddy! Bernice, you know I'd take you with me if I could. Try to understand, baby. Connie and I, we need this time to ourselves to try to make a go of it. Then I'll come back for you. I promise. I promise. I promise. Now go on inside, please. You want me? You wrote it in the letter. Please. Let me in. You want me. I'll always want you, Bernice. You're my little princess. No. But your mama, she needs you. No. And you need her. I love you, princess. <laughs> I gotta go. No! I mean, it is, that's brutal. Also, she is schooling the actor playing her dad. Like he, yeah. he's got this terrible accent. He's like, "Now, baby, we can't be together right now." And she is just like amazing. You make sound like Foghorn Leghorn is her father. I say, I say, I'll come back for you. <laughs> but come on, 
she's incredible. I, th- I bet I bet little nine-year-old Mae Whitman's like, give me something. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, that just floors me. And I, I did find this, this cute interview where someone asked her how she does that. What's the key to crying on command? Can you teach me now? Apparently when I was a little, I don't know, but apparently when I was a little kid, I told my parents that I thought of the Titanic sinking. <laughs> so if you guys want to try that, okay. the first one's free. You're welcome. <laughs> I love her. Well, I'm sure that that affects how I see this whole storyline, how much I love Mae Whitman. Because, you know, maybe if I didn't, I would just be sympathetic to Hattie and I'd be like, oh, that was just awful what your cousin did. But be- I, I can't. I'm like... <laughs> I, I, Amber, she she just she needed validation, and here he was, and gave it to her, and and. But I don't uh, I don't think that's just Mae Whitman. I think it was very well written to be gray, and which it is. It's always gray, and um, I just think that was very well done. When a little shout out to Sarah Ramos, who has the much less showy mm. task in that scene, but I thought was also excellent. I mean, safe to say this is the worst slumber party ever. (laughs) But Amber's been doing a lot of them. That's true. (laughs) Two nights in a row. Two lines jumped out at me of what Amber actually said. The first one was, there's something wrong with me. That broke my heart. Yeah, because it seems like it gives us like a very sad peek of who she apparently thinks Mm -hmm. she is. In a way, I sort of relate it back to a previous episode when she tells Sarah that anytime Sarah talks about all the mistakes she's made in her life, Amber feels like a mistake. She maybe carries around this like mark of failure or dysfunction, which, you know, Sarah certainly does as well in her way. And then the, the don't be mad at me. <laughs> then I'm just reminded that she is 16. Or how like, old of course she is. she's going to be mad no at you. No adult would ever say that with any degree of like hoping that it might actually. Come actually, through. I think an adult might say, don't be mad at me. Maybe not. I don't know. I think potentially we're, we're all just 16 year olds running around in bodies of older people. I guess I would just say to all those adults, grow oh, up. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, sometimes my students say things that are really wise. And sometimes I hear adults say things that are really not wise. And so the don't be mad at me thing. I think Hattie has been one of the only good things to come after she and her family moved from Fresno to Berkeley. You know, and I think... I think she is kind of like Camille just now, maybe realizing the magnitude of what she's done. Although maybe not because the episode starts with Amber freaking out and she knew, but I think even knowing it's boy looking at her and telling her, God, I just wonder if, I wonder if she just feels destined to be the fuck up, you know, just by everything like, well, it felt really good. And so I did it, but yeah, now I'm having to deal with the, with it. And then, yeah, saying that I feel you make me feel like I'm a mistake. Um, I've encountered a lot of teenagers who take everything on themselves. As a teenager, I did exactly that storyline, by the way, except I never told on myself, but wow. I still felt the guilt and people knew anyway. It just sucks. And I think, I don't know, I, I, now that I'm just processing this, it feels like Camille putting her hand over her mouth and like realizing it is very much the same thing as Amber self-confessing and just you know, I, I did this, please don't be mad at me. Oh my God. Now I realize there's going to be a lot of fallout from this and it's not going, going to be pretty. You know, you saying that makes me think something that feels really not kind to Amber, but I'm going to just put it out there. Do you think that maybe because she knew there'd be a huge fallout and because she sort of feels destined to be the fuck up, 
Ooh. That that's why she confessed it. Could be just now. I'll create a lot of drama, and I'll yeah. be or just bring or just bring the pain. Thank you, sir. May I have it? Yeah. Like I deserve this, or just bring it on. Oh yeah. Because I, I certainly went to school with a couple of people who, as my father put it at the time, some people think that their problems are what make them special. Mm-hmm. Wow. And in that sense, drama and conflict kind of fuels their life. And, you know, had she kept it to herself, well, then I don't feel special at all. Ugh. But if I can blow this all up, God. you know, and it feels so judgy. And I'm not no. I'm not at all convinced that that's what happened here. But I hadn't wondered up until now. And yet I feel like I have seen facets of that in real oh, life. No, that's a really good point. I'm I'm going to choose to, like, put that in my back pocket and look for evidence of that in future episodes. But for now, I'm just going to think of it as just I'm destined to be a screw up. And so I'm just going to keep screwing up and taking that on myself because that's a lot less evil. I did initially think that she told her because of the guilt. And I also wonder if there's a little aspect of if you think that there's no more relationship, do you keep it to yourself? And do you confess if you're hoping that maybe you can have a relationship mm. with him? Oh, yeah, that's possible. Maybe. Jason Kadams wrote for, you know, My So-Called Life as well. And I haven't seen that show in such a long time, but it's one of my all-time favorites. So I've seen it many times, but my memory might be a little blurry. But there was a kind of similar situation where Rayanne slept with Angela's love, you know, Jordan Catalano, and they weren't even really a couple. But I remember how heartbreaking this like kind of showdown was where Angela was like, pissed and was like done with Rayanne and Rayanne had this speech that I still think might be the best thing that ever happened on my so-called life where she says you've lost nothing you've lost and essentially says like a guy who never really cared about and and a shitty friend and then she said I lost a really good friend and she's like crying and even though she's the one who slept with Jordan Catalano she's the one who who did this I just felt so much worse for Rand than I did for Angela. And I think maybe even though I, my heart goes out to both Amber and Hattie, I think Hattie's going to be okay though. This is heartbreaking and this is awful, but she's the one in AP classes who gets perfect grades and has aspirations of a better life. This is just high school shit. Amber's afraid high school shit is all there is. Really, Steve is kind of like insignificant in a way. You know, he's just the catalyst for both of them you know, thinking about their lives, you know, once Hattie gets over this breakup and you can tell from the way that slumber party was going and they're just like breaking Steve's CDs <laughs> and it's very innocent and playful. I mean, like, you know, it's just, I mean, Amber has all this guilt and you can tell she still thinks this is really stupid, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, all right, I'll break the CD. But, you know, Amber's like had a drug addict dad who like left her and stuff. Like, I know that Hattie's life isn't super easy. She's got Max and that's really complicated, but her parents are unfailing with each other and, you know, in their support of, you know, it's just, she, she has so much more stability, I feel like, than, than Amber does. And so I think maybe that's why, even though Amber is the one who made a mistake, I'm like, but I'm more worried about Amber. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, and Hattie has got 
like this is where I think Hattie is not realistic to any 15 year old girl that I've, I've ever met, including myself. Um, and that was when she did the, the breaking up. My 15 year old brain was like, if I have sex with you, you will love me and that will give me worth and value. And she's just like, I'm just a cliche. I'm more special than that. Like she is so secure <laughs> yeah. that I know she's going to end up okay. It does seem much weightier to Amber um, because this is her family. This is her friend. This is something that she did and potentially it's a reflection on who she is, just a, another screwed up kid. And to Hattie, it's it's going to be a blip on the radar because this asshole wanted to sleep with her. No, she figured it out beforehand, didn't even screw up. Like she's going to be okay pretty soon, except that she may or may not be really pissed at her cousin forever, potentially. Good points. Shall we go to the one bright Crosby? spot in this episode? Which is Crosby and Jasmine. Oh, some joy. In their first scene together, we get this little gem. Oh, please don't. Okay, so uh, you know about separating colors, right? Well, clearly I don't know how to separate colors. Oh, no. Why are you trying to segregate my laundry? <laughs> is that okay? That's a good question. I, I wasn't sure. My immediate thought was... It's maybe the first acknowledgement that they are an interracial couple that the show has made. I mean, I thought the same thing. And thus, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it, too. But I hope I hope it's not bad to say that I thought it was kind of charming and cute. Um, But maybe maybe it's trivializing something. What did you think, Jana? I I think it was intended to be. And I was trying to run run around in my head like. I think they do need to acknowledge it because it's sort of like if they don't, then it's the same thing as being like, I don't see color. Right. Which is hugely a problem. So, so then I was like, well, how else could they have put that? Because I was, it's just so cringy. I'm like, oh, you saying it's, oh, clearly I, anyway. So what else could he have, have said? And I think every other scenario in my mind was just really, really bad. And so that one was like <laughs> the, the, the least offensive. I, I did think that they could have, have gotten by with just the comment of, oh, so you're trying to segregate my laundry and just left it at that? Huh. I actually thought that was maybe the more troubling line really? than clearly. I don't know how to separate my colors. I don't know. You know, she clearly she didn't have a problem with that. But as we've discussed before, I'm pretty sure at this point of the show, Parenthood was like an all white writing staff. So it can't be just enough that they had the black character laugh at that line because, you know, she did know, her job. Real, Wait, way to do yeah, what's on the paper, yeah. black person. Right. You, Although I will say that I liked seeing her laugh at him in the same way that I liked seeing Julia laugh at Joel yeah. to just be like, oh, they really do have a spark mm-hmm. there. Now, I think Jasmine has laughed at Crosby before. So that's a little different from Julia and Joel, where it's like, have we ever seen that? I don't know. Before? She's pissed at him a lot. You know, like Crosby keeps she messing is. up. And, but, but I do. But yeah, the, it was so cute to see them all light mm-hmm. the whole episode. Like they, they, I feel like they've, did they fight at all in this episode? No. They didn't. They had the little um, cute like banter about he like mansplains to her that it's, um, you know, Ray, Ray Scheider's line. And then she gets to woman-splain to him, Roy Scheider. And I thought that was very cute um, and indicative of their usual kind of relationship of like kind of bickering, but it was so light. Uh, it was just very sweet, the whole episode. If I may geek out about one other thing in the laundry yeah. scene, because it's been a while since I've looked up obscure shit, but I did look up something here because... Jasmine mentions when they walk in and Crosby sees all the machines, she says, it's not the large super collider. I was wondering <laughs> about that. Just a, 
what she's referring to is the Large Hadron Super Collider, which is the largest particle collider and largest machine of any kind in the world. It lies underground under the France-Switzerland border in a circular tunnel that is 17 miles in circumference. So in, in particle physics, a collider accelerates particles to very high kinetic energies and lets them impact with other particles. And when this super collider <laughs> was built, there was some slight concern that the first collision could result in the creation of a black hole that would end the world. <laughs> you maniac! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! It didn't end the world. Oh, it didn't? It didn't. What's funny, though, is as I was looking up information about this, you know how Google will will fill in questions, you know, that other people have searched, similar to what you've searched? There were questions on Google saying, did the Large Hadron Super Collider end the world? <laughs> okay. Anyway, the whole point of colliding particles is that you can analyze the byproducts of those collisions uh, and they provide evidence of the structure of the subatomic world and the laws of nature. And by studying those things, scientists hope to answer questions about the origin of the universe, whether or not there are extra dimensions, oh, or the nature of dark matter, which accounts <laughs> for 27% of the universe. That's just a little fun. <laughs> fact. Parented, and then let's talk about colors of quarks. That's cool. That- <laughs> yeah. It also kind of showed us that Jasmine watches the news. Yeah. You know, she's up on events. Because that would have been a, that, I remember that was kind of in the air at the time. Because there was this kind of 2012-ish, Y2K-ish huh. concern about, <laughs> we can't turn this machine on, it's going to end our existence. And the scientists were like, oh, come on, we are almost positive that's not going to happen. <laughs> Do you think that Crosby had any idea what she was talking no. about? No. He doesn't watch Probably the news. not. Um... And it's also when you Google it, you'll see just these big tunnel-y looking things. In a way, it does kind of look like the machines at a laundromat. Um, you guys mentioned that that Roy Scheider, Ray Scheider scene. I watched this episode twice. And the first time through the episode, I was having all those random thoughts that I rattled off at the beginning. I felt like I was only fixating on insignificant stuff. And the whole episode left me kind of, ugh. I, I didn't totally care for it. And then my second viewing, for whatever reason, was a lot more open, I felt like. I felt like I was actually taking it in. Something I completely missed the first time around was the end of that dinner scene on the boat. What I do know is that dinner is ready. Ah, so come yes, sit down, sit down. Huh? Let's do it. All right. Good. Hot, 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 hot. Wow. This is really nice. Thank you. You're welcome. It is nice, huh? Really nice. Not too much cheese. Okay. Yeah, it is. Really nice. Just the sheer number of times that he said, this is really nice. I was like, oh, I I somehow totally missed this the first time. It completely sets up his scene with the realtor, which is so precious. It's adorable. Oh, my God. And it completely builds on, you know, the previous episode when he said, we're not just fooling around. Mm -hmm. I also appreciated that she told Jabbar not too much cheese because he's lactose intolerant, <laughs> which some people seem to forget, but it seems like mama doesn't. Love that. 
I don't know. I yeah, no, that that realtor it, the whole the whole stuff. It was just really precious. I I loved it and it was a nice balm for all the really hard stuff in this episode and I love I love the realtor actually. He really just goes with it cuz Crosby's saying some insane things. If you didn't have the context that we have, like his reaction to a washer dryer is I know how to use one of these. Like, and we think that's cute, I guess. But, you know, that guy's like, okay, that's weird. Or, you know, I recently acquired a son. You know, this is such strange things to say. But the realtor goes with it. And when he sees the pictures, he's like, nice family. And it is. It is a nice family. And it's really wild to contrast Crosby in this episode with him and Katie. Oh, yeah. You know, not so long ago at all. It's because he really... Well, I was about to say loves Jasmine, but I think it might be more accurate to say it's because he really loves Jabbar. And I think I think he does also really care about Jasmine. But I think, you know, a theoretical kid was really scary for Crosby, but he loves his actual kid, you know. Um, and, and I think that that has opened him up in a way that the concept of a kid didn't. It's like it's given him purpose. He's... Yeah, he's had to grow up. Now he's having to do his own laundry and gosh, gosh. raise a kid. He's do a his new laundry, man. Maybe move off his houseboat. His houseboat. You know, Crosby's been put in a bit of a spin cycle. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I will mention really quickly that one of my um, coworkers and friends, she literally just moved to a bigger place because she inherited a family piano and there was no place to put it in her small house. And so I thought, hey, I know someone who literally moved because of a piano. This happens. I don't know. I thought that was wow. the yeah. grand. Is she Elton John? Is she Elton John? I, I don't know what kind, actually. I'm guessing upright. But that is such a funny joke. I loved that joke. I would be so. remiss if I didn't mention the piece of music at the end, which I didn't know. But Crosby said it was solace, a Mexican serenade. So I was expecting to hear something that sounded very Mexican. And it didn't really. I was listening to it and it's like, this sounds more like ragtime. And then I looked it up because I wondered, is this a real piece of music or did they invent it? And lo and behold, it is a real piece of music. It's very well known, <laughs> I guess, just not to me, the professional musician. But it's by Scott Joplin, oh. who is the like king of ragtime. So that connection makes sense. Very cool. It's got Joplin, the guys, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Yeah. Yes. I know that from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's <laughs> why so it's like... <laughs> that is the entertainer that you're having. Yeah, it's like when she makes a drawer for Josh and she's singing like, this is my drawer for Josh or something like that. <laughs> anyway. He also, you probably know the Maple Leaf Rag. Dun-dun-dun-da-da-da-da-da-dum-bum-ba-da-da-dum-ba-da-da-dum-bum. Do I? I'm guessing from the glaze. I don't think I do. That you don't. My knowledge of ragtime is real. Yeah, that's really (laughs) pop culture, and you know all things pop culture. (laughs) Well, what are our assessments of this episode overall? You know, I mentioned my first time through was rough, but I enjoyed the second time more. I really liked it. I um, maybe it is a bit of a transition episode, but I thought Amber's confession, ah, so good, and all the Crosby Jasmine stuff was adorable. I just feel like at this point in the series, I'm invested, and to me, the episodes kind of blur together, and it doesn't even feel as um, like they're as distinguished from each other to me. It's just like, oh, I'm just riding this out to the finale, and this is just another part of the story. That's part of what made me sad that I 
I was the guest on this episode because some of the other ones just as standalone pieces were really fun to analyze and yeah just this one being you know we are we're in the rising action we are pushing toward the season finale to the climax and so it just is like more and more we just pile it on higher and deeper folks and um i i do enjoy it i am invested i'm curious about what happens next i'm glad that they threw in the charm from crosby just crosby in general was extremely endearing in this it's nice seeing the man child starting his evolution he's he's got he's a smart guy he's he's got a lot going on um but yeah, just seeing everything sort of fall apart made me a little sad. It's like, oh, this is what I have to talk about is the all the fallout. Yeah, I will say it's been more fun to discuss this episode than it was to watch it. Like right after I watched it, I was like, this is not a very enjoyable it's episode. It's sad. It's heavy. Just because of all the relationships being stressed or damaged. I do think it's well done and especially well acted. In one sense, it's kind of nice to see all these people who from the majority of the series thus far have gotten along really well all the time, have problems. That being said, the fact that all of those conflicts were happening in the same episode felt, felt both like a bit much to me and kind of contrived. It felt like you could really feel the function of this episode. I know in my head that there's only two episodes left in the season. So are they just breaking everything so that they can put it back together and we get a nice happy resolution in the season finale. There's no shame in that. And you like you could argue that all these things happening in the same episode ties them together thematically, but it, it does also just feel a little bit expected. Yeah, you just see them like picking up the handfuls of shit and actually tossing them toward the fan at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I looked up, not that I don't know what solace means. <laughs> I do know what solace means, but I looked it up to see like what is the dictionary definition? And it it is comfort or consolation in a time of distress or sadness. And I thought, well, Camille is certainly seeking that, I think, in this episode. Yeah. And Julia, I would say. And arguably Amber in confessing is searching for solace of a kind. And then Crosby wanting the piano might even be, you know, let me salvage something good from my childhood when it seems like so many things are being tossed out or (laughs) threatened with burning. (laughs) It all comes back to that piano. I, I like that you are trying to tie solace to Crosby because I think that they could have just done it cheaply. I'm like, everyone else is seeking comfort and Crosby's playing this piece called Solace. Yay, that's done. (laughs) There's Um, Solace. (laughs) Yeah. I do wonder if he loves the piano so much, which I can certainly relate to, why did you ever let them put it in the attic? I mean, maybe he didn't have a place to put it, but if he's overdoing his laundry all the time, wouldn't he say, mom, dad, leave it out. I'll play the piano for you. Well, you just made me think, like, isn't that perhaps what um, Amber and Camille and potentially Zeke are experiencing? Like when I have it, when it's there and it's available, I take it for granted, but you threaten to burn it. Then um, all of a sudden- Big yellow taxi. (laughs) Right. Don't know what you got till it's Right, so- that is a good point. I think you're absolutely right. And Crosby even has a line to his siblings. He says something like, well, they're like, you haven't thought about it in years. He's like, I'm thinking about it now, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I think that's very human. Very human. Oh, yeah. I will say I was sad when my parents got divorced. They moved out of their big house and sold the piano. And at the time, certainly I lived too far away and not in any kind of place where I could have a baby grand piano. But at the time, neither of my sisters did either. 
that really bummed me out because that was a great piano and it should have gone somewhere. And one of my sisters I know now is kind of actively looking to have a piano in the house. You know, we already had one, but it's gone. I hope whoever has it out there (laughs) is treating it well. (laughs) And I hope it's bringing you joy and solace. (laughs) Nice. 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 All right. Well, please follow us, you know, on the on the Twitter and the Instagram and like us on the Facebook. <laughs> and you can find us at the old website, <laughs> parenthoodhouse.com. Thank you, Jana, for joining us. It was so great. You're such intelligent. Oh, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for making me watch Parenthood for the first time (laughs) in my life. I know. I'm I'm really grateful. Thank you for watching it for us. Yeah, it was really kind of you to put so much time into this and our podcast. And you just had such insightful things to say. And just and I miss you. It was really nice to just see you. Well, until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.